You may be aware of the brilliant cultural piece of a lesser-known superhero from the early 90s named Inside Out Boy. If you're uh, about my age, you grew up with little segments of Inside Out Boy on Nickelodeon. Um, And basically the concept was he was a boy who was swinging on some swings and he accidentally swung himself so hard he went over the bar. And of course what happened logically next was that his body turned inside out and his organs were visible from the outside. If you're a scientist, you would know that that's probably what would happen. That's what he looked like. And he was a hero to children everywhere because he could gross out adults. It's basically the concept of Inside Out Boy. It was really terrible, actually. But they would um, make these little shorts. Anybody here aware of Inside Out Boy? Wow, man, it's weird what like sticks in your brain. I'm like the only person here who knows about Inside Out Boy. Now you all know about him. So go and share the good news. Um, no, it's terrible. Don't share that at all. But he, he basically, he was this ridiculous little superhero that would do five-minute segments or even shorter in between shows on Nick, Nickelodeon back in the 90s. So you have to really be in a specific niche to know about him. And uh, today, Jesus challenges, challenges us to think inside out instead of outside in. That's why I open with Inside Out Boy. He once again challenges us to think inside out instead of outside in. And when God looks at us, he, he sees spiritually, he sees us just like Inside Out Boy. He sees right to the heart. He sees right to what's at the center of, who, of our being, of who we are. And he wants us to think the same way about our lives as we build them up to follow after him. Most of the time, we think outside in. It's just natural. Uh, it's what comes natural to us as human beings. In today's passage, we're in Matthew chapter 23 as we continue. This is um, the, 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 what is it, the uh, sixth woe. We have one more woe and then a conclusion as we go through the series that we've called woe. Um, and here's what he says in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So this is similar to last week's uh, passage, last week's verse, which talked about cleaning the outside of the cup and dish versus the inside. He's calling the Pharisees, he's calling them out on their hypocrisy in outside in living instead of inside out living. So it's similar in that sense. And this can happen really commonly in, in multiple spiritual journeys and in individuals. And sometimes it's even more damaging when it becomes a large group who starts to think this way. And communities, we need, as communities of faith, we need to protect ourselves from heading down this pathway because the temptation is strong. Really, it's, where, it's what our natural self wants to do as we approach God is to somehow earn it, somehow earn his favor, somehow earn uh, something from him. We think we do that with external practices. So individuals and churches can have these sort of outside-in type of mentality, and that can be really dangerous. In fact, that's a big reason why we're doing this survey that you're going to hear about. Ben's going to come back up. He's going to tell you about the survey at the end. If you've been wondering, like, oh, I hate surveys. I don't do surveys. They ask me to do surveys at the end of uh, a phone call with uh, my cable company or, you know, whatever. I always say no. Like, that's fine. Me too. Uh, what we're trying to do is not be an outside-in church. We're going to be an inside-out church. And so a lot of times what churches do is we, the easiest way to evaluate ourselves is with external factors. How many people showed up, you know? Um, what was the giving like or whatever. And some of that stuff has a reflection, 
that there might be external stuff that might have a reflection on the internal, but to really know and get down to the core of it, we have to go to interior stuff that we can't just observe when, when we're around each other. So that's why we're doing the survey. It's going to guide and direct us as we move forward and try to be a church that pursues Christ inside out from, from the core of who we are. So if you haven't filled that out, Ben will tell you about it. But, but do that for us, please. It takes less than five minutes and it helps us to really know where we are, even as it relates to this topic of being some, a group of people who approach Christ with the in, inside out approach. But here's the the reason for this this passage, sort of the historical context. If you flip over in your Bibles to uh, Numbers chapter 19, going back to the Old Testament, starting at verse 16, there's some some rules that we have here in the Old Testament about how Jewish people in that day were to handle things when they um, became unclean and what caused them to become unclean and things like that. In verse 16, it says, anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or who touches a grave will be unclean for seven days. Okay. So there's some ritualistic laws about being able to come into the temple and participate in community life in Israel. And especially as it revolves around the faith. And these were not necessarily sin issues, but ceremonial cleanliness issues, purity issues before God. And part of the message was to say, look, look, we cannot be perfect. We cannot be perfect, but we are approaching a perfect God. And so that's a lot of what the law was doing is pointing to our need for a savior. But here we we see some of these really tough rules about, okay, if you come into contact with something that's unclean, in this case, it involves a grave or or a dead body uh, of some kind, then you're unclean for seven days. And so you can imagine um, what's going on here when Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. The whole purpose, the idea of whitewashed tombs, they would have been very familiar with. Because once a year, when it was approaching festival time, they would go around and they would whitewash all of the tombs around Jerusalem. Here's why. Because Jerusalem was a populous city, and there were a lot of people there, and there were, if you were not wealthy, your grave would often just be by the side of the road. And so there were graves all over the place, and as people were taking a pilgrimage into Jerusalem to celebrate annual festivals and to come together to worship God, they could risk, at the very last minute, as they approached the city, becoming ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, because of accidental contact with a grave. So they'd whitewash the tombs so you knew where they were. You, can you imagine, like, you travel for a week, and you've got your family or whatever, and then your kid starts playing tag, and they trip over a rock, and, oh, wait, that's not a rock, that's a tomb. Now the whole family is out. We just spent all this time coming here. It's, it's really kind of pragmatic, this whitewashing of the tombs. They're just trying to avoid disaster. You know, it's the closest thing to it is as you approach Christmas, you know, and someone starts getting a cough. Like, I've had a cough and sniffles for like, it feels like 12 weeks straight now. It's not quite been that long, but it's been, feels like forever. And, uh, but, you know, what we have to do these days, you know, now you have to figure out what kind of cough and sniffles it is. And if you have this happen to you, like, in the morning of the 24th, you take one of those tests, you know, and all of a sudden, COVID, right, takes your family out for all of the festivities. It's kind of like that. That's the closest thing. So they were trying to avoid that type of disaster right at the last minute as they approached. Now, here's what would happen. 
Verse 17, just for a little bit more context, I'm going to read this quickly because it's a long passage, but it gives you a feel for like why this was something you needed to avoid. For the unclean person, put some ashes from the burn purification offering into a jar, pour fresh water over them. Then the man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip, dip it in the water, sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings, all the people who are there. He must sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or grave or anyone who has been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seventh days, and on the seventh day he is to purify them. Those who are being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and that evening they will be clean. But if those who are unclean do not purify themselves, they may be cut off from the community because they they have defiled the, the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, and they are unclean. This is a lasting ordinance for them. The man who sprinkles the water of the cleansing must also wash his clothes, and anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean till evening." Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean, and anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. That's what the process looks like, all right? So next time you think about uh, how much of a pain it is to have to, uh, you know, cut yourself off from society, at least we don't have that purification process that is in effect anymore. And so that's why they would go around and whitewash the tombs. Now, as you approach the city of Jerusalem, if you read through the Psalms, there are Psalms of descent and there are Psalms of ascent. Psalms of Ascent are when you are approaching Jerusalem. The reason why they call them Psalms of Ascent is because Jerusalem's like in a hilly area, and you are ascending, you are elevating as you approach the city. And so um, as they were walking up the hill towards Jerusalem, I have a picture of Jerusalem, modern day, um, and it kind of gives you a feel. I I mean, it's hard to capture landscape in a photo, but it's kind of like if you've ever been to Southern California, there's hills and there's, you know, there's, there's... peaks and valleys, and there's all sorts of stuff. Very beautiful landscape. You can kind of see some of the topography in this photo, but imagine walking towards Jerusalem, and you see this before any like of the artificial lighting and things like that was around. The, the graves and along the pathways, the white could glimmer and have this feel of beauty. And so that's what Jesus is talking about as he's saying the whitewashed tombs um, that the Pharisees are calling them that. He's calling them whitewashed tombs because of that whole idea of, of being sort of adding beauty on the outside, but on the inside, being full of uncleanliness, especially in the ceremonial element that Jesus is talking about here. So the Pharisees present well outwardly, but inwardly not so much. And so we've been talking about this. This idea is central to the last woe, to this woe, but also really in a lot of ways to this entire chapter of what Jesus is trying to say. Inside-out living is more important than outside-in living. Inside-out living is more important than outside-in living. And so today, we want to make sure we're not like the Pharisees. I've come up with four questions uh, in four different categories to ask ourselves as we evaluate ourselves. And if you want a fun name to remember it, it, call it the fraud finder. We're trying to root out fraud in our hearts and our lives. So these questions add up to become the fraud finder. It's a series of tests to put ourselves through and to, to find areas where we may need to repent of outside-in type of living. The first one is authenticity. Authenticity. And the question is, am I bringing my sin to light? Am I bringing my sin to light? Because our natural inclination is to hide away. We hide away. When we make a mistake, we hide away. That's what happened at the very beginning when the first sin was ever committed. Adam and Eve, they committed a sin, and then it says they hid from God in the garden. They hid away. They hid from him because they didn't want to have to fess up to what had happened. They didn't want to have to set, tell him, look him in the face, and, because that's the type of relationship they had with him at that time. They could walk with him and converse with God like a person with their friend face to face. 
And so they hid away, and that set a pattern. We all hide away. We, that's our natural reaction when we make a mistake. We have the tendency to want to bury it, to not let it out into the light. But Jesus calls us to bring our sin out into the light. And he says that's, that's what authentic living looks like. Jesus tells the Pharisees that they were full of hypocrisy and wickedness. They kept their sin hid away in grave-like darkness. And that's what it became, hypocrisy and wickedness. Last week, when he was talking about the, uh, the cup and the, and the dish, he had different words. He said greed and self-indulgence. As he's talking about the whitewashed tombs, he says hypocrisy and wickedness. They're keeping their sin away from the light in grave-like darkness. And our first reaction can often be to hide it away. Now, we all know, just by life experience, that nothing good grows in the dark. It's, that's where mold grows. That's where things decay and break down. We need to expose it to the light. In Luke chapter 12, uh, in verse 1, it says, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. He tells his followers, look, the, the, hip, the Pharisees are hypocrites. And, and the warning to them is the things that they are concealing, they're going to be made known. And what Jesus wants us to do as his followers is to make them known ourselves, to have trusted people who we can be authentic with, to allow things out into the light so they stop taking us out. There's a model called the Jahari Window that was developed in the 1950s by a couple of UCLA uh, psychologists. And it has these four different quadrants. And as you think about the, the Jahari window, really, it's, it's um, the, the top is dealing with self and the side is dealing with others. So if you look at the, the different quadrants in that regard, um, so there are some things that are known to self. There are some things that are not known to self. And in the same way, there are some things that are known to others around us. And there are some things that are not known to others. So that not known to others and not known to self, that's this unknown area. It's sort of this area neither, neither you or I are aware of. It's a subconscious area and uh, it doesn't get out into the open. But if it's not known to self, but it is known to others, that's a blind spot. That's when we, you know, we don't have uh, a great sense of self or where everybody else knows this characteristic about us, but we haven't caught on. You know, it's something that maybe a lack of self-awareness type of area. Then there's the known to self. I know it, but others don't know it. It's what I keep hidden away. That's a hidden area. And then last but not least, there's the known to self and the known to others, which is the open area or sometimes called the arena. It's the public life. It's what we let out. And to live authentically, what you're trying to do is basically like take your computer mouse and grab the open area at the corner and pull it down so it intrudes on all of the other areas and takes up as much of life as possible. Not that you have to be an open book to every single person you've ever met, but that you at least have people in your life who know everything about you, where you can be authentic, your true self, and then you can live out of that authentic self as you go forward. And so that's the Jahari window. That's our, that needs to be our goal as we seek authenticity in our relationships with each other and with God. Am I bringing my sin to the light? When we bring, keep our sin in the darkness, it just continues to defeat us over and over. And that's what's going on with the Pharisees. That's what, part of what Jesus is calling out. <clears throat> the second question is balance. Does my being empower my doing? Or the alternative to that would be that you, you work out of your own power. You try to do stuff for God out of your own power. 
Now, we said this in week one, that how the, the, the Pharisees were all about the public life. They were about being recognized by people um, and not so much about the secret place. And Jesus was all about the secret place. Like he, he calls us in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, hey, when you give, do it in secret. When you pray, don't do it publicly with big words. Do it quietly in your heart. Well, you know, he's, he's saying all of these things that we would be doing it with a pure motive, not for recognition from other people. He drives us toward the secret place because that's where real uh, empowerment happens. That's where real connection with God happens. And we need to maintain a balance in our lives. A, a lot of times we can be high on the activity side and low on the contemplative side. And when we do that, we begin quickly burning out of our ability to serve God out of the overflow of what he's filled us with, to serve others out of the overflow of what God has filled us with. And then we're just going on our own power. And that power is not sufficient to keeping us going in the right direction. And it leads to an imbalanced life and it leads to hypocrisy. And so that's what Jesus, that's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it says the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So Jesus is gathering a crowd everywhere he goes because they're talking about what he's doing. They're talking about the the things he's teaching and people are just coming out of the woodwork to hear him. And as the crowds gather, it says, Verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So when the crowds start gathering, the disciples get excited. But Jesus says, time out, and I'm going to disappear for a while. People are not going to know where I am. And then when I come back, the crowd may still be there, but I'm going to say, we're going over there now. Because God has spoken to him, and he knows now he's supposed to move on to the next area, even though they're experiencing a great deal of success in ministry at that point particular place. That happened frequently throughout his ministry. And Luke says it right here. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And we, when we see it in the scriptures, we see it uh, in the gospels. Oftentimes, we're seeing it when there's a lot of ministry activity happening, where there's crowds coming. He's doing a bunch of healing. And as he's pouring himself out, even Jesus knew that he had to then withdraw and be filled by his father. And he listened to the voice of his father. Jesus set for us an example, not just in his teaching to say, get to the secret place, get to the secret place, but also in his activity where he says, I'm going to do ministry, but then I'm going to hide myself away and go to the secret place myself to be filled up. And if Jesus needed it, oh boy, we need it. We need that filling from the Father, from the Spirit. We need that time of connection with our Savior. So most people, most of us are naturally drawn to the crowds. And Jesus did not allow the crowds, though, to dictate uh, his next actions. He knew that they were there. He knew that there was a, a growth in that. But he also knew that it wasn't going to stay and that things were, would change. So, and he knew when to shift his direction because of the time that he spent in the secret place. Here's a quote from an author named Kenneth Boa who I just really appreciate. And uh, this quote and what he wrote on being versus doing has really shaped a lot of my my thoughts on this topic. But he says, many people miss the point that while intimacy with Christ leads to holiness, attempts to be holy do not necessarily lead to intimacy. Okay, let me start over. Many people miss the point that while intimacy with Christ leads to holiness, attempts just to be holy do not necessarily lead to intimacy. Sanctification is generated not by moral behavior, 
but by the grace of a relationship with Christ. If we miss this, we will be driven to causes rather than called to Christ, and activity will take precedence over intimacy. Our primary purpose is not to do something for Christ, but to know him. Our activities and abilities are useless for the kingdom unless he energizes them. And this will not happen if they take precedence over intimacy with him. Wow, that's powerful. And we often do that the the other way around. We try to be holy. And we're wondering, why don't I feel close to the Lord? Why am I not growing in my faith? Well, because we're focusing on the wrong thing. Focus on the intimacy, and then the holiness comes after that, follows that. And then it's holiness that truly honors God. Oswald Chambers says, The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. Wow. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. When we turn our holiness or service for God into an idol then we miss the whole thing. We were just like the Pharisees. Because that's, that's what they were doing. They were all out trying to serve God. They were trying to make their, their lives a sacrifice, all of that, but they were ignoring the intimacy with him. And that changed everything. Their, their life was imbalanced. And they didn't, they didn't have that balance because they weren't spending time in the secret place. They were, they were not let, allowing their, their being, their, the element of just who they are, empower their doing. They were just trying to force the doing part on their own, without being formed in the being. And that's a huge difference. A huge difference. It's the difference between behavior modification and heart level change. The third question, our audience. Am I primarily seeking God's approval or human approval? Am I primarily seeking God's approval or human approval? Back earlier in our chapter of Matthew, chapter 23, in this passage, Jesus said everything they do, the Pharisees, is done for people to see. Everything they do is done for people to see. I just referred to that. And we talked about the meaning of the word hypocrite several times now, that it's, it's about play acting, it's about stage acting, and really it's about a person who wears a mask. And they, they might change their mask to play a different character depending even on the scene or, or on the production. So it's mask wearing. So who, if you're a mask wearer, who you are depends on who you're with. And so when we're not seeking God's approval, but people's approval, we, you start to see that in the way that your behavior changes depends on where you are. You'll talk one way or act one way or think one way even when you're with this group and it's totally different with this other group. That's another sign that there's some fraud being found in our hearts. We need to make sure we're seeking God's approval and his approval alone. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So if we want to serve Christ truly, we can't do it for the approval of others. We need to do it for the approval of our Lord. Now, we have to be careful here because it's not like we're earning his approval in order to earn a blessing or something like that. Again, he, he died for us when we were still sinners. He gave himself for us when we had done nothing for him. So we're not trying to earn something back, but it is a response to him and what he has done, that we care about his voice and about what he thinks more than anybody else's. So am I primarily seeking God's approval or am I looking for human approval from, from people around me? The last question is on dependence. Do I fall back 
on God's mercy? Do I fall back on God's mercy? Or the alternative here might be leaning on our self-righteousness, leaning on what we can do on our own. Now, again, we naturally tend to fall back to what we feel we have earned. We, we naturally tend to fall back on that. And, and sort of that American dream of pulling oneself up by their own bootstraps, you know, like this idea that, oh, I have to be a self-made person. You know, that we, we have trouble receiving things. Sometimes some of us are not good at receiving a gift from somebody else because we feel like it, it's, it's not something that I earned. And that really has an effect uh, oftentimes in our spiritual journey because we don't, we don't want to feel that God's given us something free. We want, to, want it to seem like we're good enough to have earned it or something, which is never the case with the gospel. Here's a, a story that, that Jesus told, a parable that he told in Luke chapter 18. Once again, uh, you'll see the audience here in, in the very first verse, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He says to, it says uh, there, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and who look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee is leaning on his own credit, right? I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything. And fasting twice a week, by the way, was like way more than what was required. And we talked about the, the tithe before. Like God did ask for a tithe, but he also says, like, if you do, if you give a tithe, but your heart's not in the right place, like the sacrifices mean nothing. The gifts and the offerings mean nothing. It has to come from a pure heart. And so the tax collector is there pointing at the good things he does. The reason that he's separated from everyone, I'm sorry, the Pharisee, the reason that he's separated from everybody else, the reason he's better than all of them, the reason he's earned this before God, and the, the tax collector can't even look up to heaven. He's just like, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And that's what he leans on. He leans on the mercy of God. When it comes to the end of the day, we're all going to lean on something. We're all going to depend on something for our deliverance, for our salvation, in our relationship with God. And the question is, do I fall back on God's mercy? Or do I have this tendency, like the Pharisee here, to point at some of the things I've done to justify why myself or why I'm, I'm, I'm able, I'm savable or why I'm good enough? And it works the other way, too. If you're here and you're like, you know, God doesn't want to have a relationship with me. He, 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 if he knows everything about me, then he is going to push me away. That's not true. The tax collector was basically the scum of society at that time because they were betraying their own people in favor of Rome, who was keeping Israel in captivity. And so they were just, they were hated by everybody. They weren't really accepted by Rome, and their own people couldn't stand them, but they were rich, and they had probably no way to really enjoy that wealth because everyone else hated them. And so uh, others just, I mean, they were just scum of the earth. We've talked about it. Oftentimes when you see them, tax collectors and sinners, they get their own category. They're, they're just a different level of deplorable for the Jewish people. 
in this day. But Jesus is putting the tax collector up as the one who is justified before God because he's leaning on his mercy. God says, you come to me with whatever you have. Our tendency is to say, yeah, I'm going to clean up my life, and then I'm going to get baptized. You know, I'm going to make sure that I have everything in order, and then I'll, whatever, start going to church on a regular basis. God's like, no, bring the junk with you. Bring it with you. Because I'm not worried about the outside in. I'm worried about the inside out. Bring me your heart, and we'll work on the outside. That will come in time. Totally different approach. And our natural approach, if we're really honest, usually looks a little bit more like the Pharisees, doesn't it? It's outside in. It's because that's what we see. That's what we see. We need, to, we need to be inside out. We need to think inside out about ourselves and how we encourage other people to approach God as well. Do we fall back on God's mercy? And we need God's mercy. That's why he came. That's why he came. If there was any other way, he wouldn't have died on the cross, right? He wouldn't have died on the cross if there was any other way. And so we need we need to, to bend, depend on him and him alone. Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians, and this is the verse we look at often as we approach communities, we approach a time of, of connecting with God through remembering and reflecting on the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, For what I receive from the Lord, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then a couple of verses later, Paul carries on. He says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So now is just a great time to spend a few moments in prayer, talking with God, to reflect even on these questions, on our dependence, on our audience, on our balance, and our authenticity, asking ourselves, where, where are we coming close? Where are we falling short? Is there anything that we need to repent of? Things that we're not even aware of right now. And Adam left us with the idea of, search me, O God, and reveal to me any way that's not pleasing to you from our hearts. And we take that opportunity to do that right now. And as you're ready, we're going to take a couple of minutes um, to, to sit, to pray, to just sit before the Lord, to have that conversation with him, to invite him to evaluate our hearts and to draw us closer to him. And when you're ready, you can take the elements. If you miss them on the way in, we have some on the sides that you can grab. Uh, but take a moment, and then we're going to close up in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do thank you right now. We just come to you. Just teach us, Lord, to depend on you, Teach us, Lord, to live a life of balance, a life of authenticity. God, help us to come to you with all of our stuff. Lord, don't, don't let us buy the lie that we, that we need to clean ourselves up before we approach you. So, Lord, today we're just grateful. We're grateful for who you are. Jesus, we're grateful for what you've done for us that we don't have to live with that pressure of trying to appear perfect on the outside, that we can acknowledge that we are in need of a Savior and your mercy. Jesus, thank you for making that possible through your death on the cross.
a couple moments, reflect, talk to him, invite him to search your heart. Take communion.